Welcome to NACSW's Podcast of the Month. Our podcast program makes available recordings of a wide variety of NACSW presentations and discussions on topics of particular interest to Christians in social work. Our Podcast of the Month program features a new podcast every 30 days for your listening pleasure. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Preparing Communities to Help Our Service Members Return Home, led by Dr. Lanny Endicott, Director of the Social Work Program at Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Dr. Dexter Freeman, Director of the Army Fayetteville State University Master of Social Work Program at the Army Medical Department Center. Today's audio conference workshop will focus on the challenge for social workers of faith to help with reintegrating military veterans into their respective communities, as well as review current evidence-informed treatment methodologies for assisting veterans with issues of PTSD and related mental health issues. Now, without any further ado, I'm delighted to present our speakers, Drs. Endicott and Freeman. Well, we know that uh, some of our latest data is that we have about 2,200,000 of our service members involved in Afghanistan and Iraq. And... Um, the big issue that we're finding is about 800,000 have experienced multiple deployments, and that's a big issue in terms of family adjustment back home, in terms of the uh, whole idea of traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress and so forth. And right now, because we have an all-volunteer army, we're finding that 43% of our fighting force comprise the Reserve and National Guard. Now, that's a huge number. Uh, we'll get to that a little bit more. And that 1% of our U.S. population is actually involved directly in this war, including the military and their families. And so, as a nation, we're really not involved in the activities of this whole war. And then, of course, we haven't spent any money except, um, you know, Congress and the president have just authorized more money on the U.S. credit card. And so we're finding that a significant number. We don't really know how many for sure, but, but uh, there are numbers upwards of 35% afflicted with PTSD, TBI. Um, and you can see the whole thing of the more deployments you have, the more possibilities you have for issues. And at least, uh, oh, God, my gosh, a lot of folks, including uh, Iraq, Afghanistan uh, veterans, are homeless. And then, of course, the military is really worried about uh, the whole idea of suicide with our veterans. And just to give you a statement from Nancy Berglass, you can read that. Uh, we do a lot. Can everybody hear me okay? Rick, are you okay there? I am. I suggest, Lenny, that maybe for the current time you just pick up and um, speak right into your phone. Sometimes using a speaker phone uh, provides a feedback loop. All right. I'll do it. Okay. That sounds much better. Is this better? Yes. Can you hear me okay on that? All right. Sounds just to give you an idea. Are you okay, Rick, on this? can hear you loudly and clearly, Lanny. All right, we'll keep going fast and furious here. I'm trying to uh, speed through some of this so that uh, give Dexter some opportunity to work on his part, and then uh, we certainly want to have opportunity for questions because this is a very, very important issue we're dealing with in this country. Um, just some workshop objectives. You can read these. Uh, we're going to talk about military culture, just a little bit about uh, evidence-based treatment, uh, traumatic brain injury, and then I'm going to bring in some information here uh, that we've really recently gotten into called soul or moral injury uh, affecting our soldiers. Um, and then the idea here is that the uh, DOD, Department of Defense, and the VA are overwhelmed with this whole business of what to do with these folks. Uh, less than 50% of veterans, however, access the VA, particularly in the mental health field. They will access the VA for their uh, benefits in terms of uh, academic and so forth. Uh, private sector partners, nonprofits, for-profits, and that's where we fit in the community. We can fit in 
working in, as partners with the VA when, with other military service providers in terms of helping our veterans come back. And so I'll get more into this a little bit later and just give you some ideas. Um, community service, community-based service providers, educational institutions, I've been working with my university to really get them up to speed to be veteran-friendly. And uh, we're trying to do that with colleges all over the state of Oklahoma. Uh, faith communities, getting them involved. And in fact, I will say this is one group that we haven't had as good success, very interestingly, that, uh, of getting them involved. The court system. Uh, Tulsa was number two in the country in setting up a veterans court uh, patterned after the uh, um, drug court that you're normally uh, aware of. Employers, uh, they're coming out of the woodwork to help out. The VA, and then we have some military support organizations that we've worked with, Wounded Warriors, Folds of Honor, Blueprint, Given Hour. Uh, just giving an example here, um, 3,300 members of the Oklahoma Guard just returned back from Afghanistan and Kuwait. Um, and it's very, they lost, I think, 50, they were in combat mission. And um, they lost 15 of their members to death, about 300 in DOD hospitals around the country awaiting uh, to get into the VA system. And then it's estimated that about half of those, according to the National Guard uh, service folks that work with these guys, about half of them are coming back with significant issues, mental health or otherwise. It's just a big deal. Um, I co-chair the Veterans Initiative for the Community Service Council, which is a community planning agency here in Tulsa. And our goal is to bring organizations, agencies together to determine what they do. Um, and we're discovering gaps, needs and services, and so forth. Um, and one of the areas that we found was a big issue. Uh, a year ago, we had a conference on um, uh, dealing with mental health, the Cesaro Symposium, Mental Health, and the association sponsored this big workshop. About 400 people showed up. And uh, Nancy Bernardi with the VA, who was one of the researchers, she talked about, uh, or she just asked the question, how many of you are trained in cognitive processing therapy? Five people held up their hand out of about 400. And some other research we did uh, with our providers in the community, uh, counselors and so forth, we found that about 10% were really able to work or even felt they were somewhat able to work with uh, our military folks on PTSD. Well, so that kind of led us to go to developing a program. We, we set up a grant with the um, Wounded Warriors. Uh, we developed a go-to provider. One of our goals is to develop a go-to provider. And the idea, we wanted to train about 60 therapists in the community on cognitive processing therapy and to create a learning community for those who work with our veterans. Um, and this is a, a situation we've opened this up to the VA, local VA. Um, our first part of our program would be military culture, cognitive processing therapy through uh, Patty Resnick at Duke and Elena Newman with University of Tulsa, and to create a learning community where professionals get together from time to time and talk about the cases that they're dealing with. And our goal, again, is to train 60 therapists. Um, and then another thing we're working on is trying to get a, 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 some way to identify who our veterans are at social service agencies, doctors' offices, employers, and so forth, should there be a question on the application for each one of these people that they can fill in, and then you can ask questions further about where you ever deployed, where were you deployed, and so forth. Um, we're doing that now at my university, trying to get a, a questionnaire there, a question on there to identify, are you a veteran, and were you deployed? And then we're also working to promote the establishment of veterans courts around the state. Um, and then the whole idea of educational institutions, we really need to be working with these guys because uh, and gals because the graduation rate for a veteran is dismal. I've heard as low as 8%. Um, and they, many of them bring a lot of issues back with them. 
um, getting back in traditional classrooms and so forth is really a big issue for a lot of them. In general, uh, we're saying remember that 1% and remember $4 trillion borrowed money. We have not had to pay any increase in taxes to uh, fight these two wars. And the lack of sacrifice from the community in general. And then after a while, you know, old news becomes less newsworthy. And here's an interesting quote from uh, Mr. Washington, George Washington, our first president. The willingness with which our young people are likely to serve in any war, no matter how justified, shall be directly proportional to how they perceive the veterans of earlier wars were treated and appreciated by their nation. And this is really a very powerful statement on the part of our president to say that if we're going to have armies and fight wars in the future, we really need to do a good job of taking care of the ones in the current wars, which right now our longest war in history, the two wars are in now. Okay, I'm going to open it up for Dexter. Uh, and Dexter going to talk about uh, military culture. Dexter? Dexter, before you start, um, would it be possible to open up for um, to listeners for any questions or comments that they might have? That would be good. Okay. Um, so anyone who has a question or a comment, again, if you can um, hit star six on your phone, that will give you uh, access to be heard uh, by Lanny and Dexter and the rest of us. So star six on your phone will um, we'll get you in. Have we overwhelmed everybody? <laughs> it's just a big job we have to do. Somebody give us a question if you'd like. Otherwise, we'll go on to Dexter and talking about military culture. Luann, can I put you on, on the spot? I just want to make sure that we have um, the ability for folks to, uh, to make comments. So, Luann, if you could just hit star six on your phone and uh, say... Things seem to be working. We are a-okay. I do have a question. Um, that is, I am not uh, at my computer, um, and I'm wondering if the statistics that are being shared are, in fact, on the PowerPoint to be picked up later. Yes, they, they are, are, and I'll actually shoot you a copy of that as an email attachment so you receive that in the next 30 seconds. That would be wonderful. I just won't be able to get it to about 10 o'clock tonight, but I was wanting to review the um, statistics and make sure that I have an idea Great. of what's being presented. I'll here. make sure to get that to you. And anyone else, again, who doesn't have access to that information, just send me an email and I'll get it out to you as well. Excellent. Um, Lanny and Dexter, I just want to let you know one of our callers um, did um, chat text in a message, uh, and uh, she was interested in having you um, say something about cognitive processing therapy. And I don't know at what point in your presentation um, you perhaps were going to address that, but that was one question that she wanted to uh, raise. We're going to do that after military culture with what uh, Dexter's talking about. Terrific. Um, anyone else have that. a comment or a question that they'd like to interject? Otherwise, we'll move forward, but uh, we'll give you uh, another second or two if you wanted to. I'm muted, right? Uh, you're not Luann, so just hit star six and you will be. Great. Okay, Dexter, back to you. Dexter, um, I can see your mouth moving, but I can't hear you talking. Um, can you hit uh, star six on your phone? Okay, can you hear me now? You're on. Okay. Yeah, and Dexter, uh, be sure and tell me when to move the slide, okay? I will. I will. Um, as I was saying before, we we uh, talk ab about military culture. Just to share with you a little bit about just uh, an example of what uh, it means to uh, to be a, uh, a soldier in the military. Of course, the unique thing about our program is that we train individuals who become uh, to become military, uniform military social workers. And one of the things that I, I did this morning in class is to find, is talk to them about their, their motivation and, and their commitment to become soldiers first. 
first of all, you know, in order to be a military social worker, one of the things that you, you have to be able to identify is that the mission comes first. And so, therefore, we, uh, as military social workers, I almost slipped and said it, we, we see ourselves as soldiers first, uh, social workers second. Uh, and one of the things that they, they did this morning is that I had them recite the Soldier's Creed, which is, it speaks highly of what the, uh, what, when you are working with a soldier, a, a uniform so a uniform soldier, uh, the uh, mentality that many of them have. And if you're not familiar with the Soldier's Creed, I'll, I'll read it, I'll, I'll share with it, share that to you, uh, with it, uh, share that with you. It says, I am an American soldier. I'm a warrior and a member of a team. I serve the people and the United States and live the Army values. I will always place the mission first. I will never accept defeat. I will never quit. I will never leave a fallen comrade. I am disciplined, physically and mentally tough, trained and proficient in, in warrior tasks and drills. I, am all, I always maintain my arms, my equipment, and myself. I am an expert, and I am a professional. I stand ready to deploy, engage, and destroy the enemies of the United States of America in close combat. I am a guardian of freedom and of the American way of life. I am an American soldier. Now, um, I had a classroom full of, of social workers and, and who were standing at attention, all reciting this without having to even blink and look at it. Uh, that's the mentality of many of the people that are are have to acknowledge and, and recognize their need for for help. If you if you noticed in there, uh, I will never accept defeat. I will never quit. Uh, it is very difficult for individuals who have been conditioned and have almost been programmed to see themselves as able to that that there was no mission too difficult for them. Uh, the uh, individuals who were standing at attention, they were all 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 they were they were all one in doing it this morning. And there's a sense of family that that uh, military soldiers have with each other. As they go from one community to another one, there there are some unique facets that oftentimes people will notice with uh, with soldiers, and that, and that's simply because they're accustomed to, and and as soldiers are are, are accustomed to frequently frequent moves and separations. So there's a tendency to allow people to only get um, uh, so close to them because they realize that that they have to be prepared to move to the next mission. Now, of course, some of the, the some of the, the the attributes that I'm referring to may not necess- don't necessarily apply to national guardsmen or or reservists unless they have spent a significant amount of time in active duty or on active duty. The other thing is that you notice that uh, with active duty uh, families is that 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 they are always ready uh, to pack up their things and move to the next in the next location. So uh the the sense of being prepared at a moment's notice to move is something that you find not just with the uh soldiers the service members but you also find with the the families themselves and and actually this all this over a period of time becomes a an area of stress for those for children who have been who are brought up in military families the idea that the the mission comes before before anything and that at times also includes the soldier and the family. One of the values of, of being a particularly uh, an Army soldier has to do with selfless service, and that means the mission always comes before anything else. The uh, Many of these individuals, that, that one of the things that, that, uh, that motivated them to come into the military is the fact that they realized that they did not have to work their uh, entire adult lives before they can begin to move to retirement. So uh, the preparation and the ideas and the thoughts about uh, the preparation for early retirement is something that um, that many soldiers can look forward to, and so that's one of the, the one of the the perks or the benefits of being a military soldier. Uh, the idea of loss, loss in the sense of not just physical loss in terms of loved ones or, or or people that you care about, but also loss of relationships is something that oftentimes um, military soldiers struggle with and 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 seek to fill that void through relationships with other individuals who are in the military, uh, which also leads to that sense of detachment from 
the community, and even their family sometimes. When a soldier deploys and returns, they've uh, when they have deployed, they've shared things with with their comrades uh, that that no one really knows about, and that uh, that they have difficulties sometimes talking about, and they also their family members have difficulties uh, knowing how to address. So there becomes a sense of detachment with them as well which oftentimes doesn't stop simply because an individual retires. That that's that valence of uh of detachment that, that valence that they, they place over their feelings sometimes uh stays in place. The uh there is a a soldier uh rep- oftentimes looks at the world high as a hierarchically in a sense that uh that I know mm-hmm. my place as an enlisted soldier and I know my place as a as a commissioned officer and it and Enlisted soldiers and commissioned officers, uh, we uh, do not mix. Um, there's some some in some organizations. There is the, the professional courtesy. However, when it all comes down to it, uh, when I respond to my commanding officer, that individual will always be seen as my commanding officer, whether they're retired or not. So uh, there's there's a uh, there's a ranking uh, rank structure that is always there, and that rank. It becomes a primary focus of the um, the organization, and the structure that you have in the military is is not a hindrance. It is also something that within the military environment is seen as a source of security for for the service member and for their families as well. Let's uh, move to the next one. Next slide. The uh, Deployment cycle, and it's you will hear some individuals in the military talk about Afrogen, uh, Afrogen cycle, which is very is synonymous to the deployment cycle. Um, particularly, active duty service members uh, are very cognizant of this cycle, and and if you are working with a, a service member, it's important to identify where they may be in that in that deployment cycle. Um, if you're working with someone who's preparing for deployments, and the preparation phase for deployment might be months and also may be before a year or so. Uh, oftentimes, uh, units are placed uh, in they're, 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 they're placed on, on um, alert, prepared to deploy, and may not necessarily know exactly when they're going to deploy, but they may be given a window in terms of when they are deploying. That uh, and creates a tremendous amount of excitement and anticipation, not necessarily just happy excitement and anticipation, because for some soldiers, that's what they prepare for. They, that's, this is what they train for, to deploy. And so there's some, some, uh, some excitement and anticipation about, uh, about finally being able to have the opportunity to do what they've been trained to do. But there's also a tremendous amount of work that goes along with it, making sure they have the appropriate equipment, uh, making sure they have a, the personnel that are, that is required in order to be able to accomplish the mission when they have uh, when they actually put boots on the ground in in the uh, um, at the location that they're deploying. So um, the there's also a lot of a lot of work that they have to do in terms of making sure that they're they are physically, mentally, and and uh, emotionally prepared for the deployment. So they go through a tremendous amount of medical screenings. They, there's time that you have to go make sure that your your um, legal paperwork is in order, um, making sure that uh, you have uh, you you have a uh, a family care plan that's in place, and the family care plan is designed for. In, in instances where you have dual military soldiers uh, who may have children, and you have to clearly identify who's going to be preparing, for, who's going to take care of those children in the absence of the service member, and you and the the care provider cannot be someone who's within the military, who, who who's in the military that might be pulled away, called away as well, and that care plan must be approved by the command. Uh, this is a is a stressor for many families who when they start thinking about pre deployment and the idea that I might not I may not return to my family and I have to have a have a clear family clear family care care plan. So uh those are some of the things that one might consider when you're working with a family who's in that gearing up pre deployment phase. During the deployment phase, um the one of the main things that the 
the uh, soldier struggles with is maintaining some type of psychological presence within their family and also the uh, waiting spouse struggles with, and that is ensuring that the, if there are children, that they don't forget that they uh, they do have a, a service member who is actively, in, who, who still loves them and cares about them. The um, service member, like one of the things about these military computers is they go to sleep on you if you don't move them after a period of time. The um, one of the things that the service member um, and the family member may struggle with is that that this period creates a a series of a, a period of disorganization because it it's a it means that they're now beginning to venture into a uh, pattern of behavior that is atypical for, for the way they have been doing things and. In order for them to make the adjustments, the service member may have to uh, adjust to not talking to his, uh, his his or her significant other as frequently and as detailed as they maybe once had, and uh, or back home, the little things that the family had relied on the service members to do, they will learn have to, have to learn to do those things uh, without that individual being present. So a lot of uh, a lot of changes occur and a lot of adjustment, adjustments occur when that service member is in the and the family is in the deployment phase. Post deployment, at this at this point the family is is um, and they've anticipated this day and they they um, they finally at this point they begin to experience relief that that he or she, they're finally made it home. Uh, there's a lot of, during the honeymoon phase, there's a lot of elation and, 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 and excitement over the person uh, getting there. But once they get there, there's some, uh, there's some uncertainties, there's some anxieties over exactly what the boundaries are, what are the new patterns that have been established, where do I fit in. Do I talk about the things that I've that have, I've experienced over the last 15 months or last 12 months? Do I talk about those things? How do I address those things? Service members oftentimes uh, desire to spend time with their comrades that have deployed with them so that they can begin to process some things. But there's a lot of guilt over spending any time away from the family because you've already been away from them for so long. Um, during this um, this 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 phase of it of the, um, the deployment cycle, the, um, the it's not long before the service members begin to to think. Okay, now that I'm back, when do I start preparing for the next deployment? And typically, uh, it they usually uh, take about six months uh, before they begin to make that that mental shift and then be starting to mentally prepare themselves for the next deployment. And the unit begins to, to prepare for this as well, uh, for the next deployment. So when we talk about post-deployment and you hear people say redeployment, they all, those are used synonymously because uh, they tend to go hand in hand. Next slide. These are some of the things that Waiting spouses uh, have uh, expressed concern about the uh, research has shown that 44% of the spouses uh, that uh, have been surveyed have expressed some uh, heightened level of discomfort in being able to cope with not just one deployment but multiple deployments. And when you're looking at uh, the waiting spouse, one of the things that one must ask themselves is not just um, if they are concerned about uh, the, the safety and what concerns do they have about their safety, but how many uh, t deployments have they gone through? Uh, because it becomes cumulative after a period of time and for not just the service member in terms of coping with the the, the effects of, of deployment, but also for the family as well. This slide before you uh, kind of outlines some of the the primary concerns that waiting spouses have about service members who uh, are away. I mean, service member, the spouses they they struggle with with loneliness and loneliness in the sense that uh, of, of others in their communities and their families being able to understand some of the things that they struggle with. So they are struggling with that sense of isolation as well. Keeping in mind, going back to that that first slide that I had in, in terms of 
looking at service members, the idea that, that there's a level of detachment, but the families also have that. And if you can imagine a family that has been somewhat detached, reliant, sort of self-contained, when there's a deployment, it, you can anticipate that loneliness is going to be a big issue that they may struggle with because the, the, the reason that they're there is gone, is no longer there physically. Uh, at this point, I mean, these this slide pretty much fairly speaks for itself in terms of so you can see that uh, if you are a clinician and you're working with a family that uh, in the deployment site that that is in the midst of a deployment, uh, these are some of the areas that you might that you may want to address with them. How are they in terms of household duties? How how are they handling the household duties? Has there been an, a shift in terms of the division of division of responsibilities? And, and how are they addressing that? How are they dealing with that? So this is so that uh, I, I'm sharing this this information with with you with you all, so that you can maybe identify some areas as a clinician that you may want to address with those waiting spouses during when you look at the employment cycle. During an employment cycle, these are some of the things you may want to address with them. Uh, does anyone have any questions about anything that I've presented in terms of military culture? Again, if you'd like to ask a question or make a comment, if you can just hit star six on your phone, um, you'll be in. Rick, do I need to mute mine? Nope. Keep yours open, Dexter. Okay. Hello, I have a question. Okay. Um uh, you, I, I think you did a, a, an excellent job. Not that I, I know this information, but I feel like you've you've explained so much. Um, and my question is about the, all the people in the military who aren't necessarily going to be deployed, meaning mm -hmm. going going away somewhere and being, I guess, an active duty or active battle. Mm -hmm. uh, would you say that some of that similarity still exists? I'm thinking of families, uh, you mentioned the military social workers. If they're not necessarily going to be pulled away from their family, is there still some of the uh, uh, the, the factors that you mentioned for those families? Oh, oh, when you say the military social workers, are you referring to uh, civilian social workers who, um, who work with the military, or are you referring to uniformed social workers? Well, I guess um, it was. Uh, I just learned about that, as you said that that there is a distinction between the civilian and the, the those in a uniform. But I guess my question is just for military families in general. Do you think there's a there's a, there are differences between those that have a uh, one or more family member that is going to be deployed, taken away, going out into active battle, versus some that may be in one place and not have that. Right. There, yeah, there are certain uh, occupational specialties that uh, those individuals do not deploy. So uh, you yeah. you may not that individual wouldn't be coming to you uh, as a result of deployment stressors uh, stress uh, stressors related to the deployment. But that individual may be coming to you uh, due to stressors as a result of. Uh, multiple moves and, and separation and isolation from significant families. So when we talk about the culture of the military, that culture of the military is pervasive whether regardless of whether the individual, in the, some members deploy or not. However, uh, as a result of the culture, uh, the military culture, when you put when you when you uh, when you overlay multiple deployments on top of that, sometimes it creates more difficulties. That's that's really the the uh, message that I was trying to uh, yeah. convey. Right. Yes, I see. Thank you very much for explaining that. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. Anyone else a comment or question? I can just hit star six on your phone keypad. Okay. There we go. There's no more questions. Yep, I suggest you um, proceed. Okay. Um, if you look, uh, you can get this online. This is Paint a Moving Train by Cuddler. Uh, he's going to do a one-day seminar on this particular program in advance of our cognitive processing program that we're going to have here in Tulsa. And so this is a very good resource 
to help you online understand military culture, in addition to what uh, Dexter was talking about. Uh, cognitive processing therapy, uh, PTSD 101 is a course that's free, offered by the VA. And then there's also a psychological first aid offered by the VA. Uh, then there's also what we know about Army's, uh, Army families is another resource that can be, uh, that can be accessed. Uh, talk a little bit about PTSD. Um, of course, we've got a short time here, so we have to move pretty quickly, but um, inability to recover from a traumatic event uh, normal recovery intrusions in normal in normal recovery intrusions and emotions decrease over time and no longer trigger each other and those not recovering strong negative emotion leads to escape and avoidance and that's one of the issues it's a fear-based type of it of a uh, dynamic uh, you can see this the three different uh, categories here uh, reliving the event which includes flashbacks repeated upsetting memories of the event, nightmares, uh, uncomfortable reactions to situations that remind one of the event that occurred. So you're dealing with a traumatic event and these um, symptoms that come out of that. Uh, avoidance is another symptom. Um, the idea of feeling detached, unable to remember important aspects of the event, uh, having a lack of interest in normal activities, avoiding reminders of events, places, people, and thoughts, um, showing less of one's moods, and feeling like one has no future. That would be the second one. The third one is arousal, uh, difficulty concentrating, being startled easily, exaggerated response to things that startle, feeling more aware, hypervigilance, uh, feeling irritable or having outbursts of anger, having trouble falling or staying asleep, and that's a big issue I know, particularly in my working with students, uh, the sleep issue is a huge issue. Um, feeling guilt about the event, survivor guilt, and symptoms typical of anxiety, stress, tension, so forth. Um, it's my understanding that uh, the next DSM is going to do some revision on uh, the PTSD symptoms and be interesting to see how they come out with that. Um, Talk to you a little bit more about that. Some of the treatment. Um, a year ago, as I mentioned, we had a big mental health conference here in Tulsa with about 400 people at a luncheon. And the question was given, how many of you know anything about cognitive processing therapy, prolonged exposure therapy? And about five people held up their hand in a crowd of about 400. And the other research that we did, about 10% of those folks in a research project done by the University of Tulsa among local providers of therapy, uh, found that 10% uh, really knew anything about PTSD treatment in terms of these two different methodologies. And these are the two that have come out um, with the VA as the most, uh, as the best for PTSD. And just to give you uh, a brief here, um, you have like 12 sessions in cognitive processing therapy, and first learns uh, you learn about PTSD symptoms and write an impact statement uh, session. You read and discuss impact statements and learn the relationship between thoughts, behaviors, and feelings. Um, then you have a written assignment. And on the third third session, the assignment to write a detailed description of the traumatic event, told not to avoid emotional responses and to read the description daily to themselves. And this would be your third session. The fourth one, um, reading and challenging, client read statement to the therapist, and cognitive distortions are questions they're talked about. Uh, the next two sessions, five and six, same as four, but greater emphasis on teaching client to change distorted thoughts. And then seven through 12, Clients use more advanced worksheets to practice challenging thoughts and understand the relationship between thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. And so there's a real focus here on uh, addressing that traumatic event or events and writing them down, going through them over time with the therapist. Uh, and this would be your cognitive processing therapy, uh, 
the one that the VA really recommends, this particular approach. And again, uh, a VA website for this um, would be uh, PTSD, so forth here. And then there's another website. I would uh, recommend if you have an iPhone or a um, Android, you can get, you can download PTSD Coach. It's a free app produced by the um, the VA, the Veterans Administration. Try it out and see how it is. It, it's really good. And you, if you had a veteran with you in your office, you might use this app if they have, you know, an Android or an iPhone or an iPad uh, or some one of the other pads. Uh, they could use this. You could use this to help them deal with them, their problem of PTSD. Prolonged exposure therapy has four main parts. Notice again, there's an education piece about PTSD symptoms, goals of treatment, of where we're going with this. Uh, they teach them how to breathe, learn how to control breathing when under stress, including the stress of treatment. And then they have two different ways you can go with this. One would be in vivo, practice approaching situations that are safe, but you have avoided because of their relationship to the trauma. And uh, one aspect might be to go back and revisit the site where the trauma occurred. And then a fourth part here would be talking through the trauma, imaginal exposure, um, repeatedly talking about the trauma memory with the therapist. The process enables a client over time to face the traumatic memories with reduced fear and anxiety. Notice again, use the word, word fear and anxiety here that uh, when you deal with post-traumatic stress, you're dealing with the fear response and the therapy to deal with it is a fear-based type of a therapeutic approach. And you can see uh, there's a link there to the, uh, the VA website. Do I have any questions about any of this at this point? Again, if you'd like to ask a question or make a comment, just hit star six on your phone. I will say at the conference coming up in St. Louis, we'll do a one-day uh, program and the afternoon will be entirely spent on cognitive processing and exposure therapy. And Laura Schaller, Dr. Schaller, who is a member of NACSW, uh, will be presenting this part of it. Dex and I will do uh, some, of the, some of this in the morning with you that we're doing here today, but we're going to do it a little different. But I'm just saying that uh, uh, there will be a, at least a full afternoon and more uh, dealing with these different therapies. So, any questions? Shall we go on? So exposure therapy is the same as emotional processing. Is that right? Well, you're going to, yeah, you'll end up having to emotionally process what's happened here um, with you. But you're actually in either um, going back and facing the situation or doing a kind of a within an imagination the imaginal exposure, uh, you're trying to deal with that, work through that with the therapist, where you go through step-by-step step what's happened in the traumatic memory. Does that help? Yes. You know, there are a lot of parts of this that remind us of just basic cognitive behavioral therapy. But they're calling it cognitive processing therapy is a specific procedure developed through uh, lots of experimentation, um, lots of research. They has sorted all these out and said these are the two best in working with post-traumatic stress. And by the way, you're going to find uh, in working with uh, veterans, there is some, um, there's some question about post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, versus post-traumatic stress injury, meaning that I guess to get reimbursed through the DSM, uh, you need to have some kind of a problem, uh, some kind of a syndrome here, some kind of a disability with this. Whereas a lot of folks say, you know, a lot of these soldiers come back with injury, but it doesn't necessarily turn into a mental health disorder. 
And then traumatic brain injury, this is fairly new. Uh, I just heard a couple of weeks ago that the VA is now working with the NFL on uh, brain injury because you've recently heard about football players and so forth having ended up with uh, brain injuries, you know what I mean, that, that affect them the rest of their lives. Um, and it could be. You just had a brief loss of consciousness. I remember talking to one um, social worker who said she was interviewing a soldier, and he says, I don't think I have any problem. And she asked the question, well, were you ever knocked off your feet? And he says, yeah, I think I, five times, I count five times I was knocked off my feet by an explosion nearby. And so she starts asking him more questions about it, and he's having headaches. Uh, you could have vomiting, uh, a little bit of nausea, um, lack of motor coordination, dizziness, difficulty balancing, lightheadedness. These are all some of your lighter symptoms of, uh, of um, traumatic brain injury. Vision problems, ringing in the ears, bad taste in the mouth, fatigue or lethargy, changes in sleep patterns, uh, behavioral or mood changes, confusion, trouble with memory, concentration, attention, or thinking. Um, suppose you're a faculty member and you have a, a, a veteran walks into the, and he wants to sit in the back of the classroom and um, he's wearing dark glasses and he's wearing a hat and he wants to sit near the door. Um, probably for him that would be very normal, would it not be? Suppose he saw a flash, one of the bombs uh, went off and he saw this huge he saw the splash, and it did some damage to his uh, to his eyes, and so he has to always uh, basically wear sunglasses. So can you imagine being judged for walking into a classroom wearing sunglasses? I ask my faculty here at ORU, I say, identify who the veterans are in your classroom the first day, and then say thank you for your service, and then say come by and see me so we can talk if you have a chance. And just to get to know them. Don't necessarily know about their war experiences, just get to know them personally. Very important, just to kind of know that. And then the opportunity comes up, if they don't show up to class, you can follow up with them, call them up, talk to them, say, can we visit, can we talk? And then hopefully a possibility of referring them on for help might be there for them as well, if they have a problem. Uh, I want to bring up another um, topic here. Um, moral injury. I don't know if any of you have been reading this or talking about this, but this has been going on for some time. Uh, moral injury is a very interesting topic where I think um, we might have a real role to play. And uh, I think the VA and the military is really looking at this as a possible contribute to the increased number of suicides that have been occurring on a just unbelievable a suicide a day from our veterans. Um, it is not PTSD, because PTSD is an injury of traumatic, of trauma, leading to suppression of fear and lack of integration of feelings with coherent memory. Just talked about that. Leading to symptoms including flashbacks, nightmares, dissociative episodes, hypervigilance. But moral injury is a negative self-judgment based on having violated core moral beliefs and values or feelings betrayed by one in authority, or feeling betrayed by one in authority. It could be you have violated your own uh, moral values, or it could be the officer who told you to go into this action, um, you had a question about those orders. It includes loss or destruction of moral identity, loss of meaning. Its symptoms include shame, and that's the big one. Shame, survivor guilt, depression, despair, addiction, trust, anger, and so forth. Um, and I was in a seminar not too long ago where the discussion of sh the opposite of shame is love. And one of the ways to show love to our veterans is to welcome them home, uh, honor them, have praise for them, um, say you're honored, we want you back in our communities. Uh, sometimes you're Native Americans, and uh, Oklahoma has quite a few Native Americans. They have, for their warriors, they send them off to war with certain kinds of ceremonies. When they come back, they bring them back with ceremonial 
uh, activities. And then they also, for some tribes, they will use a sweat lodge to try to um, get the war out of them. So they have ceremonies to try to help these guys um, come back in to the world, to society. Um, one thing here we found is that mission first training, as Dexter was talking about, it can contribute to resiliency, including survival, while ignoring empathy for others and deep moral values. In other words, the group, the mission, the team um, is most important. And that soldiers are often taught to see events as a, in a neutral light, not labeling them as good or bad, and to focus on those things that are positive. However, a soldier could experience the incomprehensible while on mission. In other words, uh, killing a family, including women and children, after kicking down the door of a suspected insurgent, or losing a close friend, or torturing detainees. Um, will the soldiers see this as neutral or positive? Because deep down within that soldier, that could have, that order or that activity could have um, robbed him of some basic, you know, who he is, his moral values. And so the person of faith, many soldiers seek the help of clergy. And part of this is to avoid the negative psychosocial uh, being on their record that you go to see a psychologist. Uh, you don't want to have that label. To seek help with religious meaning, uh, moral issues, and matters of conscience. Uh, social workers of faith can also provide caring and empathetic help through careful listening and understanding as soldiers may seek community professionals to avoid mental health labeling. And that's where we fit in. Those of us who are not associated with the VA can be a real help, I think, to soldiers who might seek us out and the families of these soldiers who seek us out for help. But we have to kind of, as Dexter was alluding to here, we really have to understand military culture and not play dumb or act like we know too much, but we just need to work with them in a very empathetic, caring way um, and let them teach us about the culture where they come from. Moral injury, it's not a clinical condition, can be medicated or cured by psychology. It actually requires the reconstruction of a moral identity and meaning in life with the support of a caring, non-judgmental community, a chaplain, a pastor, a therapist, and even a Christian social worker. That can provide a way for the veteran to learn to, and the key here is forgive. The issue in dealing with moral injury, as I have explored it, is the concept of forgiveness. The soldier has to learn how to forgive and let go. Um, here are some resources. Let me back up one point with this. I was in a, um, Tulsa had another mental health conference, and we had invited a, a, a Navy psychiatrist. His name was Bill Nash from San Diego. And he says, we're really doing a lot of research with the Department of Defense and the VA are working together trying to find a way to uh, really address PTSD. And he said, but uh, we've misdiagnosed a lot of soldiers with PTSD because it might have been moral injury or it might even have been just simple grief, loss. And so if it's um, PTSD, you're going to use these two therapies we talked about. If it's grief over their loss, then it's a different way of going at it. Talk to them. Help them work through the loss. Help them to grieve over what they've lost, a comrade who's died. If it's moral injury, work with them on the concept of letting go, addressing forgiveness, reconciliation, uh, and not to punish themselves eternally for what has happened to them. And that's some of the problems we've had with some of our veterans who've been in like the, the Vietnam War is that some of them are still in the process of punishing themselves for what they uh, encountered in Vietnam. So we've got some questions here. We've got a few minutes left, um, or do we? Yeah, we do. Yep, got 15 minutes uh, for any questions or comments that folks would have. Again, star six on your keypad, and you're in.
Certainly have some questions. You were talking about forgiveness and letting go as part of um, the healing process with moral uh, injury. In what direction does that forgiveness go? Uh, Self-forgiveness, I think, is one. Yes, self-forgiveness uh, is one of the was one of the key issues there. Yes, forgiveness over what you have done. It's usually what you have done or you didn't do, and you should have done. So it's forgiving the self. Does forgiveness go other directions as well, typically? Yes, I think that would go to reconciliation. You might want to reconcile with someone else. That would be the reconciliation piece. But the forgiveness that we were talking about is mainly the forgiveness of, I forgive myself for violating my own moral code. Uh, I should have done something and didn't do it. I did something that I should never have done. And it's very hard for me to live within myself for what I have done. And we're trying to find out, uh, sort this out. Uh, what, what are the diagnostic categories for this versus grief versus PTSD? Mm-hmm. Because you've got three different things here. The thing about forgiveness of the community, um, especially in the case of the Vietnam vet returning, I was thinking about forgiveness of the um, commanding officer that may have uh, erred in his judgment, forgiveness of the enemy? Yes, probably. Could be, or reconciliation with the enemy. You know, um, some of our Vietnam veterans have gone back to Vietnam, the very place where certain events occurred, and have talked to the people and tried to, in one sense, gain some healing from that experience. Mm-hmm. So it might be a very uh, complex forgiveness process. Yes, it could be. It's very complex. And so there's, this is all in flux. As I present it to you, my side of it, this is very much in flux, but it's a very exciting thing for those of us, of people of faith, to say maybe we can be of help in this area, but we, we really need to uh, be understanding and compassionate and non-judgmental uh, with the people that we're talking about, talking to, who've experienced these these things that have violated their their moral code. And mindful of the differential diagnosis. Then, thank you so much. Uh huh. <clears throat> I, I am wondering. I'm wondering if there if there are others out there who, after hearing this. Uh, our, our presentation um, had things that they had in mind that, that we were going to discuss maybe that we did not address. Are there any things that we you have wanted us to discuss that we did not address? Hello. Hello. Yes. Can you hear me? Okay. I guess my um, question is um, relating to programs. Besides the therapy, are there any programs that you guys are aware of that we can perhaps refer individuals who are, um, you know, dealing with such issues um, as it relates to deployment um, that we can refer them to that you guys know of? Uh, Yeah, I think what... Um, we found in Tulsa is that we had to ramp up uh, pulling the agencies together to find out what each one could do, what each one could do, put on the table to address veterans with. We did not have the organization. We were a bit disorganized with that whole point. Now, Tulsa is a good community with a lot of good professionals, but we weren't really organized and that we are now getting ourselves, after about three years of this, uh, organized to the point that we're going to be doing the cognitive processing therapy. Um, we work with the VA. In fact, at one point, I want to say to you, the VA, we have a VA um, hospital about 45 minutes from Tulsa in Muskogee, but there is a VA clinic in Tulsa, and they are really um, overloaded, and so they're going to be expanding their facilities. We're asking the VA, and we're working with them, why don't we put some community agencies in there in the building working with them? Like, for instance, credit counseling, domestic violence, uh, family and children's services. These kinds of organizations 
that could help and assist the VA with additional resources to help the veteran. Because we understand that a lot of these guys and gals uh, have financial issues. They need to help in, in, in how to set up budgets and in financial managing their money um, and other things, like I just mentioned. And domestic violence is a big issue, too, for those um, with post-traumatic stress and even more moral injury. Does that Another help? question. Kind of... It does. It does. It did. Um, another question. So relating to the cognitive processing therapy, I was wondering, does it involve a lifestyle? Um, does it address lifestyle? For example, their diets or any of that nature, um, exercise, anything of that that might help that we know of when deal when it comes to cognitive issues. We know that, of course, there's aspects of dieting and aspects of activities that they need to do themselves that can assist. I wonder if, if that therapy addresses those as well. I don't think the the pure form of that therapy does, but it could be in informal conversations with your client. Uh, certainly you could bring those things in there as, as help to them. Okay. So there's room to, to add or to ask. Um, yeah, as far as I know, yeah. Okay, okay. Thank you. Uh, yes, I had a quick quick question. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, question was in in my reading, I was reading uh, about uh, the effectiveness of exposure therapy, or uh, I think it was eye desensitization therapy, as it relates to the military population. Could you speak on that a little bit? The EMDR you're talking about. Right. In this uh, one meeting I was in with uh, Nancy Bernardi, who is the head of the VA in terms of deciding what therapies to use, and they do rankings of all these different therapies um, based on various kinds of research, um, she said that EMDR needs more validation of its effectiveness. Um, that all the studies that they have done, they have got these, these are the two best that they have found and they're trying to find others. The two I just talked to you guys about um, are the two that they have found that work the best. No, I, I have. Are, they didn't have the evidence for that. Yeah. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. EMDR may be very good. They just didn't have the studies, the research to back up the EMDR. I think that's what you were getting at. And what about uh, exposure therapy? Yeah, they've, they've had a number of studies um, that shows that that is a very effective therapy. Mm -hmm. Although I think we find that um, the cognitive processing is the one we're going to start with here in Tulsa because um, it's going to be the easier one for us to do. Right. And that um, being that most of our therapists around will be more cognitive oriented, uh, using our basic background training and so forth, we can more easily adapt to the cognitive processing. Mm -hmm. Okay, appreciate it. You know, I'm hoping you could, would you be willing to take just a minute and give an example of a dialogue in a session with both of the recommended therapies? That might just give me a little bit more feel of what those look like in a session. Uh, Dexter, you want to do that? Well, I'm I'm probably not the best one to do that. I'm not um, because I hadn't really uh, been trained in, in CPT and uh, prolonged exposure. Uh, a number of our a num we we do have the training here, but uh, it in order to actually uh, I as a matter of fact I just finished some training in cognitive processing therapy, primarily uh, as Lenny laid out. Uh, it's it. It's very cognitive based uh in a sense that uh, you develop a relationship with the with the with the client uh based upon uh, on what the the uh issues are concerned or what their thoughts are and what their what their perceived uh, uh feelings are related to the behavior that they're exper experiencing and we we get that that client's buy in and uh and and throughout the, this whole process, because you are working on a cognitive level, you are trying to um, help the individual to manage 
their emotional response to their uh, to the, to the to the emotional stimuli that they they describe. Uh, I.e., it could be that my wife is uh, my wife is constantly complaining that I am never that 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 I don't talk to her about what's going on and you get the individual to uh to break that down to identify what the automatic thoughts are and so you get them to slow down is 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 as a using CPT is one of the things that you really have to focus on and the other thing in using CPT is that it's manualized and so uh, as a as a therapist you have the actual manual in front of you that you're actually using uh and it allows you to maintain a certain level of 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 objectivity as you are working with with a client and by you maintaining that sense of objectivity it allows the client to also be able to manage their 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 flood of emotions as well that makes sense what i'm saying so yes. uh, as you're doing yeah, and, there, and there are a lot of worksheets there are a lot of worksheets yeah, very, very. It's it's very structured and it's very man and it and it's very manualized, which makes as Lana was saying that it's easier to to implement. And and quite frankly, I'll tell you that for me, I find that that's probably one of the things that I struggle with uh, because I am um, uh, I'm psychoanalytically trained, and relationships are really important, typically typically going where the client takes you. Uh, CPT goes contrary to that. Where you actually you stick with the manual, you follow the manual. However, it doesn't mean that you completely disregard what the person is saying. However, you trust the manual and you trust that in, that that instrument, and you get the client to learn to trust that as well. And we're using uh, Patty Resnick, uh, Dr. Resnick from North Carolina, or Duke University, uh, to be our trainer for two days in this cognitive processing. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us today for NACSW's Podcast of the Month featured selection. We hope you found today's session useful and that it will support your efforts to thoughtfully integrate Christian faith and social work practice. We also hope that you will consider participating in additional NACSW's activities and events, including NACSW's upcoming convention in the fall, our quarterly audio conference workshops that we offer at no cost to NCSW members and which includes free CEUs accredited by the Association of Social Work Boards, our online continuing education program, and access to dozens of archived podcasts from the member section of our website. Also, we invite you to join NCSW's Facebook group or our Facebook fan page. For additional information about these and other NACSW benefits and services, you can go to our website at www.nacsw.org. Thanks again for listening in today to our podcast session today.